0: A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Adrian Carter. Adrian was born in Hungary and escaped the communist regime when she was a young girl. Eventually, her family settled in Canada. Although she grew up with her Jewish heritage suppressed, she longed for spiritual sustenance as a teenager. She eventually discovered the Baha'i Faith and has devoted her life to service to humanity ever since. I started the interview by asking Adrian where she grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: Well, I grew up in several different places. I was born in Hungary and I lived there for my first 12 years. And then we escaped from Hungary during the Hungarian Revolution in Austria for a few months before I came to Canada with my parents. And in Canada, I continued my growing up in Vancouver and then Toronto for my high school years and then my university years in Montreal.
0: So how old were you when you escaped
1: I was taught.
0: Can you give us a little background on what the situation was and how that situation impacted you personally?
1: Sure. During the time I was growing up in Hungary, life was was actually quite difficult. When I was born, and I was born into a Jewish family, the Nazis were just taking over Hungary and the persecution of the Jews began. So... In the first year of my life, we were living under the most intense persecution and in hiding. And most of Hungary's Jews, which there were about 900,000 of them, were annihilated. And most of them, most of my own family, were taken to Auschwitz. And so we survived the first year by being in hiding. And then the Russian army came in to liberate us, and they bought communism with them. And so from age 1 to 12, I was living under a communist government, and so were my parents. And things were extremely difficult, especially for my parents. There was a, a lot of persecutions. There was no freedom of speech. There was, of course, a one-party government. In 1956, in October, when the Hungarian Revolution broke out, it was a very interesting experience because I was certainly old enough to remember it. Even the communist youth were involved in the uprising against the communist government and trying to overthrow the rule of Russia. And for a short period, we felt that the Hungarians were winning, and then the Russians came back with um, a huge army and many, many tanks, destroyed a good part of the city. And it was at that time that my parents decided this was the time to leave. So we escaped from Hungary during the middle of the night and ended up in Austria.
0: Can you describe that night when you escaped?
1: Well, that was a harrowing night. First of all, even leaving Hungary, we left in, uh, leaving Budapest, we left in absolute complete secrecy. No one was allowed to know about it. We packed one small suitcase and left all of our belongings behind Closer to the border, we met with a group and gave all of our money to the person who had agreed to lead us through. It was walking all through the night, very cold weather, under the eyes of the border guards, and until we were able to cross the border. Once we got to Austria, We went into a refugee camp. Austria welcomed us with open arms, but there were so many Hungarians escaping at the same time that it was difficult for them to accommodate all of us. So we went from one refugee camp to another refugee camp to another one. Like in the four months, we have stayed in many camps. We had no idea which country would want us until we heard from Canada that they were ready to accept us.
0: And can you describe the border crossing?
1: It was walking, 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 walking. I remember at one time, because we were with a small group, and there was a small baby with us, and the baby began to cry. And suddenly the dog started barking, and all the uh, we could hear the noises of the border guards. The baby was given some uh, strong sleeping medication, and we we were just immobile in in one of the ditches, waiting until things would become more quiet. And then we got up again and we had to cross a river that separated uh, Hungary from Austria and only one person at a time could cross difficulty was there that we were really worried that we would be caught while some of the members of the group were yet still in Hungary but luckily all of us managed to to cross but In the first camp, we discovered that that baby has never woken up from the medication. So she kind of became the sacrifice for our group's safety.
0: It was a remote border.
1: Yeah, it was a remote border. It was very far from Budapest. We were led into the small town of Andau, which was in Austria. There was actually... Very interesting book by James Missioner, The Bridge at Andau, that describes what happened to the Hungarians who were uh, trying to escape. And, of course, the bridge was destroyed quite a bit before we got there. That's why we had to go on a plank one at a time across the water.
0: Now, how how often were the guards patrolling this... Part of the border?
1: The guards were constantly patrolling the border, but in the darkness they couldn't see us, and of course we had to be so extremely quiet. Uh, That's why when the baby cried, that alerted the guards that a group was going through.
0: So, did the guards get close to you when they heard the baby cry?
1: Well, we could hear their voices and we could hear the dogs barking. And, of course, the difficulty was that if they would have caught us, many people got shot right there, and some others were taken back into Budapest. So you never know what was going to happen.
0: So I'm surprised the dogs didn't pick up your scent.
1: Well, we were lying in the ditch, and maybe uh, Mm, they did not pick up the scent for some reason or other, but we didn't know what was going to happen So it was a very anxious night.
0: And how long were you in the refugee camps?
1: We were there for about four months.
0: And then you went to Canada?
1: Then we came to
0: Canada, yes. And when you got off the plane in Canada, what was your first reaction?
1: Well, we didn't come on a plane. We came on a boat. We came on an Italian boat in April, which was... Quite an interesting trip, but it wasn't an easy trip because, you know, I mentioned a little bit about the anti-Semitism of the Hungarians. Well, during communism, all religion was banned, and I have never heard any anti-Semitic remarks. In fact, I did not even know that I was Jewish because my parents never spoke about it. But once we we became refugees, amongst the Hungarian refugees, the anti-Semitism was just flared up completely. And when we were on the boat, they have threatened to throw all the Jewish Hungarian refugees into the ocean. And Being a child, of course, that was a really terrifying thing, and I didn't know whether they would actually follow through or not, so it was a very scary journey, and then we arrived to uh, Halifax, but I remember being on the boat coming to Canada. We had nothing. We did not have any money. We had no clothes. We had... No knowledge of language and yet we were filled with hope that this country would be friendly to us but we also knew very little about Canada so it was hope and expectation
0: Can you describe any other acts of anti-Semitism that were directed personally toward you?
1: Well it was uh, in most of the refugee camps the anti-Semitism was very, very strong. We have stayed in one camp that was a Jewish camp, and when our bus was going to that particular camp, the bus before ours was overturned by the Hungarians because that was the Jewish bus. There was amongst the kids, there was a lot of stone-throwing and calling of names, it was not a very pleasant scene. And for someone like me, and probably most other kids, we didn't know what it was to be Jewish. We, we haven't grown up in that. We haven't really realized that. And we also wondered, how do you know that we are Jewish? It's not written on us, but it was an extremely difficult experience for us.
0: And how about on the boat trip?
1: Yeah, we had that in the refugee camps, and we had that on the boat trip, yeah.
0: How did your family get established in Canada?
1: My parents were actually very courageous people. You know, there was a train, I remember, that took us from Halifax throughout Canada, and every city they dropped off some couple of hundred refugees. And we were dropped off in Calgary, well, We knew nothing about Calgary, but within a day or so, my mother managed to start working, and my father managed to get a job, and neither of them had any knowledge of the language. But they were very enthusiastic that they were going to make it in this new country, and it's going to be okay. And, of course, I did all the translating for them, although I did not speak English for the first year either, but I learned the language much faster than they did, and I started school pretty soon afterwards, so I became the right hand in doing most of the business and all the translation business.
0: While going to school?
1: While going to school, yes.
0: And did you experience any anti-Semitism in Canada?
1: Well, you know, it was interesting, but when we were on that boat, I decided that if we arrived to Canada alive, nobody will ever know that I was Jewish. And I actually kept that for about 35 years. I never mentioned my Jewish background. And interestingly, afterwards, like much more recently, I have done a lot of work on reclaiming my Jewish background. So I did not experience anti-Semitism because nobody knew of my Jewishness.
0: So why don't you describe that work that you did to reclaim your Jewish heritage?
1: Well, in 1992, you know, the Baha'i Holy Year.
0: Adrian, why is it considered the Baha'i Holy Year? Holy Year.
1: That was the time when we were supposed to face our Creator and go deep within ourselves. At least that's what I have understood. And so for me, what that meant, it was the time for me to reclaim myself and reclaim all the lost parts that I have left here and there because it would not have been acceptable in Canada. You know, the Universal House of Justice quoted that this was a special time for a rendezvous of the soul with the source of its light and guidance. This is a time of retreat to one's innermost being. So this sentence was very special for me, and I decided to take it literally and go back, go back to the places that, I have never been before. I actually decided to go back to Auschwitz and see the camps where my family, many of my family have died. Went back to Hungary and really reclaim my Jewish past. Also went back to Austria to some of those refugee camps. And then the last place was in Israel, at the holy places.
0: So just to give our listeners a little bit of background, you mentioned 1992 was the Baha'i holy year, and that represented the 100th anniversary of the passing of the prophet-founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. That's right. And then you also mentioned the institution of the Universal House of Justice, which you had quoted from. And the Universal House of Justice is the Baha'i Faith's International Governing Council that's resident in the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. Yes. So what was it like for you going back and visiting Auschwitz and, and the other places?
1: Well, it was an amazing experience. It was a very heavy experience. I have never been to Auschwitz from about 15 to 19, when I was searching, searching for God, searching for religion, searching for many, many things, I learned a great deal about the Holocaust. It was in Auschwitz where I really experienced what it was actually like and kind of followed the route where my relatives were taken. We saw the The train station uh, where they were taken, and we saw the different barracks, saw the crematoria, and it was just an amazingly heavy, heavy experience to try and understand it and digest what has actually happened and how man's inhumanity to man resulted in something like Auschwitz.
0: What did you gain from this pursuit?
1: Because I was able to reclaim that lost part of myself. You know, we so often cut parts of ourselves off because we feel it's not acceptable in the place where we happen to be living. But that part was a very vital part to me. I loved my family when I was very small. By cutting off the Jewishness, I have also, to some extent, cut off that part of my being. So being able to regain it and being able to be proud of who I was and understand it better, it made an enormous difference to me.
0: Now, you said between the ages of 13 and 19, you were in a search for religion. What was the catalyst for that search, beginning at the age of 13?
1: Well, I should say maybe from 15 to 19, because from 13 to 15, I was far too busy just learning the language, getting settled in school, and just learning about Canada. But then, in adolescence, I felt a real need, an emptiness, to find the divine spirit, to find God. Now, I grew up in communism with the knowledge that there was no God. That's what we were taught, of course. But I knew that there had to be something beyond that. So I knew about Jesus, of course, and I went to a couple of different churches. I attended some youth groups just learning to find what is religion all about, what is God all about. But I was very disappointed at that time because each of the churches that I visited felt that God's love only seemed to have extended to the congregation of that church. The church down the street was not okay. Their beliefs were different, and there was just such disunity that I saw amongst the Christian churches, the only thing they agreed on is that the Jews were no good. Don't associate with them. So it was a really confusing time because I could not find any religious place where I felt, wow, they got the answer. And it was also the time when um, the civil rights movement was going on. Martin Luther King was quite a hero of mine, and there was a Christian clergyman who not only taught but truly practiced God's love. And so I wanted to find where his truth, his spirit is coming from, but I couldn't find it within Christianity.
0: You found something missing, some some inner spiritual piece of you missing. Did your parents experience this
2: at all?
1: No, not until much later. It was much later that my mother returned back to the synagogue and back to her Jewishness and found some peace and satisfaction in her religion. But during that time, my parents were too busy just surviving, making a living. They were they were so delighted when they had a nice place to live, and we bought our first car, there was enough food to eat. These kinds of things took up most of their energy. And I did the search pretty well by myself because none of my peers or friends were at all interested in these things.
0: So it's just an innate thing that happened within you.
1: It wasn't an innate thing, but I remember it was a very, very strong urge to find something that can feel a certain emptiness. Now, you know, teenhood is generally also a time of a lot of angst, a lot of turbulence. I was trying so hard to find... Questions like, what is God all about? What is goodness all about? How do we achieve universal peace? What is my role in the world? All these questions were really distressing me, and I wanted to find answers.
0: So, Adrian, at what point in your life did you run into the Baha'i Faith?
1: Well, I was 19 years old. I uh, started university at McGill. This was also the first time when um, I was living away from home and the courses were fascinating at the university and I found people who were also interested in some similar issues. And I was introduced to a young French-Canadian who started to talk about his religious beliefs. At first it sounded very strange names. But then I started listening to what the message was because I was never brought up with God. It it was the social message that really touched my heart. The more I learned, the more I became attracted to the Baha'i faith. And I was 19 years old still. And then I met Montreal Baha'i community and just seeing how it was composed of people from different races, different backgrounds, and the unity that was shown in that community, it became more and more attractive. Then I also learned that uh, Baha'is in many parts of the world were persecuted, and I wondered, okay, I am not Jewish because of the persecution, How would it feel for me to become a Baha'i and be persecuted for my faith? But I guess this fear of persecution did not keep me back from accepting the faith. So I became a Baha'i in Montreal at age 19 and never regretted it.
0: Now, you said it was the social message that attracted you yet you were intensely involved in a spiritual search so i'm kind of surprised that that it was the social message that attracted you
1: well because i understood the social message you know in the theories of communism there were a lot of the messages that were actually were familiar to me like the equality and Many of the other messages, science and religion, well, no, that certainly was not in communism. But it took me a little longer to really hear the true spiritual message and to feel that connection with Baha'u'llah and and Abdu'l-Baha.
0: Abdu'l-Baha being the son of... The
1: the son of Mm Baha'u'llah, yes
0: did the bahai faith fulfill the search that you were looking for and if so how
1: well it absolutely fulfilled the search that i was looking for because like all humanity is like one family that's what i was really looking for where Whatever background I came from, being Jewish, it was completely and totally accepted within the Baha'i community. No religion was better or worse than another religion. It's the equality of all religions, like the whole idea of progressive revelation where God sent messengers to people at different times to bring a spiritual and a social message. But the spiritual message was always the same. The social message differed depending uh, on the time. So this is really what I was looking for and couldn't find it in any of the other religions where I have searched in my rather limited capacity.
0: When you discovered the Baha'i faith, did it change the direction in which you were heading in your life?
1: Completely, yes.
0: Can you describe that?
1: Because it gave me a direction, and it gave me, it, it assisted me to have people that I could work together a bit. It was no longer so lonely. The whole Baha'i community believed in the same areas, and the whole issue of service completely affected my life later on. Like, soon after I discovered the faith, I also met my husband. My husband is from a different racial background as uh, I am. He's an uh, African-American. And in 1965, a marriage between a white person and a black person was very, very rare, And the support that the Baha'i community have offered us was was absolutely amazing. So it would have been much more difficult to have a marriage like that without a supportive community. And then our children, of course, being biracial, the love and support that these Baha'i communities have offered was was incredible and this was just the beginning how it has changed uh, my life's direction but then uh, later on we went pioneering to Nigeria I was teaching there at the School of Social Work at the University of Nigeria and without the Bahai ideals and some of the support of the Bahai communities in Nigeria Life would have been a lot more difficult.
0: So you got married in nineteen in the nineteen sixties.
1: Nineteen sixty-five. Yeah. Nineteen
0: sixty. So, what was it like for you outside of the Baha'i community, having an interracial marriage?
1: Well, it was uh, not easy at that time. My husband found it very difficult to obtain a job, and sometimes housing was difficult. Some of my university friends did not agree with our marriage and so they distanced themselves. It was also very interesting, as you well know, you can't, within the Baha'i faith, we can't get married unless we get the written permission of all of our parents, and that took quite a bit of time to work through, especially from my parents, because they had some difficulties with the idea, not because of my husband being who he is, but going into a marriage, an interracial marriage, and its possible difficulties. After they um, got us away from the Jewish persecutions and now possibly facing a very different sort of persecution. And it took them uh, several months in order to come to the idea that we have the strength to carry out such a marriage. So they have given their permission, and his parents have given their permission too.
0: So it sounds like your parents were very open-minded. What was their reaction to you becoming a Baha'i?
1: They were absolutely fine with me becoming a Baha'i. They felt if this is what I wanted, then go for it. They have never opposed my becoming a Baha'i. And my husband also became a Baha'i before we got married. And his parents were completely all right with him choosing the Baha'i faith, although their background is Christian, a seven-day Adventist.
0: And they were okay with him becoming a Baha'i?
1: Yeah. Actually, that's So we got two pretty open-minded set of parents. Yeah. They were initially concerned with us because they knew what the world was like. 1965, there was still a lot of difficulties in um, blacks and whites being together. And they worried about what will happen with our children that maybe... Neither sides will accept them, but of course this did not turn out
0: to be so. You had mentioned the term pioneering in relationship to the Baha'i faith. Can you describe for our listeners what that means?
1: Well, pioneering is going to another country away from home to serve in some capacity and also to strengthen the Baha'i communities there, to teach as much as it is possible. For me, service was always a very important area, so the way we were able to serve initially back in 1983 was going off to Nigeria because I managed to get a job there at the university, but We were also assisting the Baha'i students within the university, and of course, we've done a lot of service work with the non-Baha'i communities all over Nigeria also. And since that time, service has been a goal for me because in 1999, I joined Medicine on Frontier and have gone to... Uh, many different countries in times of disasters worked with affected populations that was most of them were shorter term service work. but then uh, one of the areas was in Malaysia, where we worked with refugee population from various different countries
0: so you're a medical doctor
1: No, I am a clinical therapist, mental health
0: can you describe for me your experience of the Nigerian community, both the Baha'i as well as the greater Nigerian community?
1: It was an amazing experience being in Nigeria. You know, my background is in social work, and social work was just beginning in um, Nigeria. I had the opportunity to be in at the base level so we had a great group of several of us who were teaching the students the skills of social work. And at the same time, by that time, we had five children, and all five children were with us. The youngest one was a baby of eight months old, and my husband took the role of house husband because he was at home taking care of the children, going to the market. And this was a very unusual thing because Nigerian men don't generally put in charge of taking care of the children. So that created quite a wave in the Nigerian communities. And life was not easy for us in Nigeria. We had very small accommodation, like we had two rooms for uh, the seven of us, and there was no running water. And we went through some very difficult times, but our goal of being there and the beauty of the people that we worked with allowed us to overcome some of these difficulties, and we did stay for a period of two years. In spite of all the difficulties, there was a coup while we were there, and there was a currency crisis while we were there. It was because there was such a close-knit community around us that we actually managed to survive, because during the currency crisis, there was no money. The government changed the color of the money, and the banks did not have enough money to give out. So there was literally no money or very small amount to buy food. And so the whole country went hungry because we had to manage life without food. So it was due to the friends, Baha'i friends, non-Baha'i friends, that we managed to get a little bit of food. Or when we got some money, we cooked up some soup and invited all of the community to share. And it's helped, each helping the other that they were able to survive.
0: And how old were your oldest children when you went to Nigeria?
1: Well, the oldest son was 15, and then two of them were 11. One was 9, and the baby was 8 months.
0: How did your older children react to the fact that you were going to go to Nigeria from Canada?
1: Well, we discussed and consulted with our children at length before the whole idea came up, at least with the older ones. And each one of them, uh, like the four older ones, the baby was too little, was in agreement that this is an undertaking that the family will try, probably for a period of two years. And the children were actually amazing in spite of the difficulties, in spite of at times lack of food, in spite of the really difficult living conditions. They have learned to cope, and they they were thriving. They had many friends. They didn't have any material uh, possessions. I think we owned a r- little radio But we had no car, we had no bicycles, we had very little, but these children were thriving.
0: What were the circumstances that had you leave Nigeria?
1: Well, the second year has finished, the second year of teaching, we thought, okay, two rooms for the seven of us is enough, the kids were growing up, the oldest son by that time was 17 years old, and he was doing his schoolwork through correspondence, and we wanted to get them back to regular school. We didn't want them to miss so much school, although the younger kids, the three middle ones, they were in the Nigerian school system. And so we came, we returned, but of course we had no job and we had no money. So I took the first job that was available, which was up in northern British Columbia. So from the heat of Nigeria, we ended up in the cold, cold part of northern B.C. And we lived there for two years.
0: What were the reasons that you left after two years?
1: I got a transfer back to Victoria, where I uh, initially have worked in Victoria, when I worked for the the provincial government, I had to quit that job in order to go to Nigeria. So Victoria was home. We had a, a house here in Shannigan Lake, and we, we maintained that house. We rented it out. So this was really our home. And from Vanderhoof, we then returned back here.
0: When did you start working with Doctors Without Borders?
1: In 1999, since that time, I, uh, I have gone on missions with them every year. You know, I have done about 13 missions in many different countries. My job in these countries is, well, first of all, if there is a disaster, for example, the tsunami I was called to India or the huge earthquake in Pakistan, and we were there within a couple of days after it has happened. People lost everything there. They were in a daze when, uh, when we have arrived. So it's providing assistance to the people, but also in each and every country, my job was to build up a mental health team of people. Local people and train them to do some trauma counseling. And then, as long as I stay there, to, to supervise them and assist them in whatever way I can. So it's, it's helping the local population to work with their own people in uh, providing counseling, comfort. I mean, people have experienced tremendous, tremendous traumas. And I had a chance to work in many different cultures during this time, met some absolutely amazing people with whom we have still remained in in contact. Many of the areas where I was called were uh, Muslim, and I had a chance to become friends with a lot of Muslim uh, counselors and translators. And I... They taught me a great deal about their religion. And so it was really a give and take. And the connection of hearts and souls, because when people were so affected by trauma, there is our hearts are so much more open, and the connections were, um, were just magnified. There was a wonderful lady that I have met in uh, Sierra Leone, She was from Liberia, and they were in the refugee camp of Sierra Leone. One of the doctors was asking me to see her because she had lost her son about two years ago, couldn't get over the, the grief, and she still carried the son's picture in the coffin in her pocket she was completely stuck in her ability to do anything because of the grieving. And we met, we had uh, one amazingly powerful session where, you know, we were two strangers. We I have never seen this lady before where something opened up within her. She was able to just cry out her grief in a very, very moving way. But something happened to her after that particular session. We just hugged at the end of the session. Something very powerful has happened to her because it opened her up and she was ready to move forward and ahead. And she was a profoundly... Spiritual Christian woman, but she couldn't even feel the spirituality because she the grief just overtook everything after that session. She was able to put away the son's pictures and she knew she would never forget him, but she was able to go on living and I've seen her several more times and met her family in Sierra Leone and then the family moved back to Liberia when things were uh, a little calmer there and I kept in touch with her and just about two, three weeks ago she called me on the telephone and let me know how they're doing and uh, there has been so much progress in their life and she sounded really happy. So our meeting was just one little part of her life but the connections are really unforgettable. And there were many other stories. Uh, one with uh, an, uh, an Iraqi family. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to choose because every country where I was, there have been people who profoundly touched me.
0: Can you tell us the, the Iraqi story?
1: That was in Malaysia, There have been people from Myanmar, refugees from Iraq, refugees from um, a couple of other African countries. Again, one of the doctors referred to me, this Iraqi man who was profoundly depressed. When I found out his story, he was told by the Iraqi government he was a, a very highly qualified engineer that they wanted him to make bombs for them so they can kill the Americans. He absolutely refused to do it. He thought about it for a little while, and he refused to do it. And he realized what such a refusal... He had four children and a wife, and his family, together with him, decided that he needs to escape from the country. And he left the family in the care of his brother-in-law. He left, and then uh, he heard very shortly afterwards that the brother-in-law was uh, murdered, and his head was severed, and they sent him a photo of his head. And he just became profoundly, profoundly depressed because he didn't know what happened to the family. He couldn't connect. He was worried about the children. And, of course, in Iraq at that time, there was, and still is, there was tremendous upheaval. So he didn't know if they were dead or alive. And we met every week, and part of my job was just to provide support to him and maybe some hope that things are going to be okay. He had a sister in Canada, and so when I had to leave Malaysia, I, um, the United Nations refugee group was looking at getting him to Canada. But then I left, and I did not hear from him. And now, several years later, Suddenly, out of the blue, I get a telephone call at home, and it was him. Somehow, the family was able to join him. The UN has assisted the family with the four children to join him, and he just sounded so happy and just so so much better than how he was when I last saw him. And he was just so thankful for uh, the assistance given him at that time. That kind of support that we can give when when people are at the lowest moment, it's never forgotten. It's not forgotten by our uh, patients, and it's, it's certainly never forgotten by us. And this is just two amongst many, many, many stories.
0: So Adrian, is there something you haven't done yet that you want to do? <laughs>
1: um well I have done a great deal that I wanted to do. I want to go for more missions. I am hoping that maybe both my husband and I can go together for a longer mission with Medicines on Frontier. I am working full-time still here in Victoria, and I love my work. I work primarily with adolescents who are having all kinds of difficulties and family problems. Is there something, there is more of what I have done that I would still continue, like to continue to do?
0: Well, Adrian, thank you so much for sharing your story.
1: You're welcome.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Adrian Carter, a mental health counselor who has worked with Doctors Without Borders in Kosovo, Kashmir, Sri Lanka, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Malaysia. Russia, South Africa, and Myanmar. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. But in